The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good to be with you guys this evening. Hope you had a good weekend. It was good to finally get some rain. Uh, Lindsay and I moved some plants a few weeks ago, and they're officially dead. And so the rain made me think they're going to be alive, but they're not. They're dead. So don't trust me with any landscaping. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. Really excited to dive into God's Word with you this evening. If you have a Bible or a phone, go ahead and get to Ephesians chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. If you're in one of those, it's page 568, Ephesians chapter 3. Let me pray for us. Help us center our hearts on the Word of God before we get into it. God, we are so grateful that you've won the victory. Death couldn't hold you down. The devil couldn't stop you. Sin didn't get the last word. And thank you that you are ruling, that you're reigning, that you're not dead. And thanks that we serve a risen Savior, an alive Savior. And that one day, we're going to return these tears are going to be no more. This pain, this frustration over the brokenness of our lives and our world are going to be no more. Would you help us as we look at your word? God, would you uh, fulfill your promise that your word doesn't return void? It grows roots in our hearts that we're actually changed. Help us to love you more, to respond to the gospel more because of what we see tonight. We love you. Pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, before we get there, let me uh, set us up to where we're going. So a couple of times over the past few years, I have walked through a season that Lindsay and I have come to call the funk. It's this season that, for a number of different reasons, uh, something enters my life and my heart just gets clouded to the goodness of God. The season where I can say a whole bunch of theological truths. I know how good God is. I know how much he loves me. I know that he died for me. I know that Jesus is risen and ruling and reigning. I know that God has a plan for my life, all of these good things, and yet there seems to be a disconnect between what I can affirm with my head, what can I, I can acknowledge and actually embrace in my heart. It's a gap. And in those seasons of the funk or the gap, no amount of Christian encouragement seems to pull me out of it. No amount of scripture reading and prayer and silence and solitude with the Lord seems to penetrate my heart. 
It's just this cloud, and it just comes and goes, this gap that starts between what I can say about God and what I actually embrace in my heart. I wonder if any of you guys walked through a gap. Maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you've been in that season for the last few weeks, the last few months, the last few years. What do we do with that? What do we do when all the theology in our heads doesn't seem to actually translate into affections in our hearts? What do we do when we can say a lot of good things and we can remind other people of a lot of good things about God, and yet we can't seem to grasp it for ourselves? I'll give you a few examples of how I've seen this play out and see if you can recognize the gap. So community group, you just got done sharing your sin. You just got done sharing your struggles, your burdens, and someone in your group lovingly reminds you of the good news of the gospel, lovingly reminds you Jesus died in your place and rose again. And everything within you, or maybe you even say, yes, I know that is true, but I just don't feel it right now. Or maybe it's midnight. Should have gone to bed two hours ago, three hours ago if you're me. And you know everything in your head says, don't look at porn again. You know it's not going to satisfy. And you know it's not going to give you what it's falsely promising. And yet deep down within you, you feel like, I just can't stop. Maybe it's the third night in a row that your kid can't sleep. You're frustrated and it's 5 a.m. and they got to get up soon anyway. And you're like, what is happening? I know God is using this for my sanctification. I know there's a purpose in the mundane. I know that this is hard, but it's good. And I just can't seem to believe that right now. Maybe for you, you join a church plant called Citizens Church. You sign up and you say, I want to see God change lives. I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to live as a family together. But right now I feel alone. It feels like everyone around me is cold to friendship, also the gospel. What do we do with the gap? Our text today, Ephesians 3, is a transitional section within the book of Ephesians, so it's kind of a summary and a turning point. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are Paul basically saying, in light of the gospel, this is what's true about you as a follower of Jesus. And he's going to turn the corner in chapters 4 through 6, and he's going to say, okay, in light of what is true about you, this is how you should live. And he bookends, or it kind of infiltrates these two sections with a prayer. What you're going to see in Ephesians 3 is the greatest missionary who ever lived, a man who preached the gospel to many, who we were reminded of last week, suffered much for the gospel, come to grips with the fact that in order for the good news of Jesus, the love of God, to actually take root in our hearts, it's going to take a work of grace. It's going to take Jesus himself. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the prayer, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and we're going to see what it is we need God to do in our seasons of the gap. And then I want to give us some steps we need to take in the gap, and then we'll close with some gospel encouragement for the gap. Let's start with Paul's prayer. So in the the prayer, you might have noticed when Cole was reading, he kind of builds on himself. It's layer after layer. He says that, so that, so that. And if if I could summarize Paul's prayer for us, this is what it would be. Paul prays that God would give them power through the Spirit to know Christ's love and embrace his kingship. Paul prays that God would give them power through the Spirit to know Christ's love and embrace his kingship. Let's look at it together, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So let's break this down together. First, Paul prays that God would give them power through the spirit. When we're in the gap, when we're in that season, that disconnect between our head and our hearts, we need God's spirit and we need God's power. We need a work that only God can do. We need him to bridge the distance between what our heads might acknowledge, but our hearts want to reject because we're stuck. Let me tell you about one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. It happened to me three years ago. So when Lindsay and I were living in Columbia, she worked at the YMCA. And one of the perks of her working at the YMCA was that we got a free gym membership. So I would go to the downtown Columbia Y, and I would get my elliptical on, don't hate, and I would work out there. And because she worked there, I got to know some of the employees. Y'all hating on ellipticals? They're great. I got to know some of the employees, and one day in particular, I think it was a Thursday afternoon, I decided it felt like a great day to do max bench press. So if you don't know what that means, you're trying to max out. Basically, you're trying to see how much weight can I lift one time right? It's just this ultimate kind of like, you're a pump up moment. And so I put some weight on it. Not that much. Don't worry. And I lift it. I'm like, yeah, let's do even more. And I lift it again. And I'm like, let's put even more. And I end up putting more weight on than I had ever lifted in my entire life, which still isn't that much. So don't get too excited or impressed. And I'm like, yes, let's do it. Now, if you're doing max bench press, you know that it's a really good idea to have a spotter. A spotter is someone who stands over the bar, and when you can't lift it, they help you get it up and put it back on the rack. Whether it was pride or apathy, I don't know. I was like, I don't need a spotter. I can lift this much. I got this. You can see where this story is going. So music in my headphones, listening to, I don't know, probably punk rock or something, and I'm like jammed out. I'm like, I can do this. And I get under the bar, and I lift it over the little handles that hold it up, and boom, right on the chest. Knocks the wind out of me. So now I'm embarrassed and I'm hurting and I'm stuck. The most embarrassing moment of my life. I still to this day think I blocked out the rest of the story. I don't know how I got out from under the bar. I know I didn't lift it. I think hopefully someone came to help me. Maybe I like scurried my way out. I don't know. Have not bench pressed since then, if you can't tell. Here's the deal when we're in the gap, we're stuck. When we're in the gap, it's like that bench press bar is on top of us and it's knocked the wind out of us and all we feel like is, I can't get out. How long is this going to last? Like It just seems like this cloud is here and it's here to stay. And Paul says, hey, we need God to move. We need God to work. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 14. Notice the posture of Paul. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, the typical position of prayer in the Jewish culture was not one of kneeling. It was one of standing. Most Jews, when they prayed to God, they would stand. Kneeling was reserved for the most desperate of prayers, the most pleading of prayers. And Paul says, I'm bowing my knees. I'm pleading with God. He needs to do a work. We need his power, but not just aimless power. Paul's going to continue the prayer. He's going to tell us what we need power for. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We'll come back to that in a second. Keep going. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
So Paul prays that God would give them power through the Spirit to know Christ's love. He says we need it to understand. Look at how, how he, he describes Christ's love here. He says breadth, length, depth, and height, meaning the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all who would come to him. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and it's high enough to exalt that sinner to heaven. That's the love of Christ. It's high, it's deep, it's wide. And Paul says, hey, this love, which is already theirs, right? So he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people that have already embraced and received the love of Christ. And yet he says, this love, I'm praying that you would grasp it, that you would comprehend what he says surpasses knowledge. He says, this love surpasses knowledge, and yet I'm praying that you would get it. In other words, that the bigness of Christ's love would be grabbable. They would seize it, that they would be able to embrace it, not just this kind of out there kind of love, but actually love and specifically love for them. One of the effects of the gap in our lives is that we can begin to believe the lie that God is not good, that his love is not for me. Or we can acknowledge, hey, maybe with our minds, okay, I know God loves me. Like, I, I, know, he's, I know he's good, but it just feels like his love is ungraspable. Like, it's unattainable. Like, it's just this kind of out there thing that I just can't get my hands on. Or maybe we would say, yeah, I know God is good. I know that he loves people, but it, that's just not for me. He loves, he loves other people, just not me. He's good to other people. He's just not good to me. Like, God's love is this distant thing that we just can't quite reach I was given a really good example of this uh, the other day. I was driving Harper uh, to the mall. That's what we do for fun. When we hang out on Friday afternoons, I take her to the mall, and we look at Disney toys that I don't buy her. Uh, but we were driving to the mall, and she was in the car seat, and she loves to grab at things that she can't reach. So when she's strapped into the car seat, we try to give her like some stuffed animals and some books and things to play with to keep her entertained while we're driving, and she throws them all out and then spends about 15 to 20 minutes just going, ugh, ugh, in the back seat, trying to grab these things that are just a little bit out of reach. I was like, that's such a picture of what happens to us in the gap, right? Christ's love feels like this unattainable, it's just a little bit there. I see it, and I want it, and I want to believe it for myself. I want to experience it in a tangible way. I want it to actually affect my heart, my affections, what I actually do and live like, but it just feels a little bit out of reach, which is why Paul says you need the power of the Spirit. Dane Orland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says it this way. He says, the Spirit's role in summary, is to turn our postcard apprehensions of Christ's great heart of longing affection for us into an experience of sitting on the beach, in a lawn chair, drink in hand, enjoying the actual experience. In other words, we need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that the love of Christ, which we want to look at like it's some postcard that we're never going to visit, we're never going to experience it, into something that we actually lounge in. We actually embrace for us. We rest in and this happens by the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to show up to bridge the gap. Paul says the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's outside of our grabability, and yet by the power of the Spirit, he helps us grasp it. He helps us get it. He helps us know it. So when we're in the gap and the love of Christ feels out of reach, we go to God and we say, God, I don't believe your love for me in Christ right now. Maybe it's because it doesn't look how I want it to. Maybe it's because of some sin I've let get in the way of our relationship. Maybe it's because of disbelief. Maybe it's because of just an undefinable cloud of heaviness. I don't know what it is, but I need you to bridge the gap. 
I need you to help make what feels ungraspable, graspable. Paul prays that God would give them power through the Spirit to know Christ's love. And then he finishes the prayer. Look back with me at verse 17, and then we'll look at 19. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he says in verse 19, That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul prays that God would give them power through the Spirit to know Christ's love and to embrace his kingship. To know Christ's love and to embrace his kingship. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is already true. Christ is king in your life. He's king of all things, but he's king specifically for you when you embrace the good news of the gospel. What Paul's after here, what his prayer is, is not that he would just dwell within us, but that he would actually take up space and make his home. And here's how we know that. So first, in the Greek culture in which Paul is writing, the heart, what he's addressing here was more than just feelings. So we think about the heart like it's our feelings. It's what we love. It's kind of these affections, whatever. But in their culture, the heart was the kind of driving force of a person's life. So it was what affected their will. It was what affected their actions, their decisions. It was kind of their driving force. Second, when, when Paul says in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, there are two words in the Greek language that he could have used for the word dwell there. The first has this idea of uh, kind of to inhabit, to take up space for a little while. But instead, Paul chooses to use the word that means to settle down. It carries the idea of a permanent resident, not a short-term visitor. So Paul's saying what he's praying there is that Christ may settle in, that he would make up a residence that he would become the owner of the driving force of your life. So a lot of you guys are moving into new places, right? You're getting married, you bought a home, you're renting apartments, whatever. And what happens when you move into somewhere new is that there's some amount of work that has to be done to, we would say, turn the house into a home, right? So for some of us, the house, the house needs a lot of work, right? We got to paint, we got to fix things up, we got to tear down paint, we got to do a ton of work to make that space livable. For others of us, we just need to move our furniture in and then it's ready to go. It's move in ready. But all of us, when we move into a space, have to do some amount of work to make that dwelling reflect who we are, to make that dwelling reflect the owners of the house. When you take up residence somewhere, over time, that residence is going to look more and more like your space, like your house. That house has become a home. That's what Paul is praying by the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ would do in our hearts, that he would not just take up space, but he would actually make his dwelling among us. That he would actually be king of our driving force, that he would actually make our hearts, our wills, his home. What does that have to do with the gap? Well, there can be a temptation within the gap to settle, to think things like, well, this is always how it's going to be. I'm always going to struggle with this. I'm always going to be an addict. I'm always going to be a gossip. I'm always going to struggle with other people's approval. This is just who I am. I'm always going to have an anger problem. I'm an eight, don't you know? I'm always going to have an anger problem. There can be a temptation to settle. I want you guys to hear me on this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a sinner declared saint being sanctified. Let me say that again. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a sinner declared by the power of the gospel saint being sanctified. And some of us, we cheapen and we cut off and we get in the way of our own growing in Christ because we just stop at the first declaration. We just stop at, okay, I know I'm a sinner, right? Have you ever read John Calvin? Do you know the doctrine of total depravity? I'm a sinner, like two of y'all got that joke, thanks. 
I'm a sinner, right? Don't you know, like the gospel, it starts with I'm a sinner. Yes, absolutely. Amen. You're a sinner. That's why the gospel is real. That's why Jesus had to come and die and rise again in your place. But now through faith in Christ, you're not only a sinner, but you're declared a saint being sanctified growing into the image of Christ, growing in maturity. And so some of us, we go, yeah, I'm a sinner, so this is how it's always going to be. And we cut off and we miss the power of Christ that we would actually learn how to say no to sin and yes to godliness more and more as we grow up into Christ. It doesn't always have to be that way. You don't always have to struggle with that thing, that you don't always have to wrestle with it. And for a lot of us, we're just like, well, that's my thorn in the flesh, right? Isn't that what Paul means? That sin is just, it's my thorn, that one, that's my thorn too. I got like seven thorns. We cut off our own maturity. We cut off our own sanctification. We cut off our own growth in Christ because we settle and we don't say, hey, look, the Christ is real and the spirit is within me and he is powerful such that I might learn more and more to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Listen, you should look more like Jesus in 20 years than you do now. For some of us, we've settled. We resigned. This is how it's always going to be. I'm always going to struggle with this. I'm always going to struggle with that. I'm always going to do this. I'm going to always do that. And the prayer in the gap is to say, Lord, will you help me believe that it won't always be this way? Lord, would you help me believe that I might not always struggle with that? Would you help me believe that I might not always be addicted to that? Would you help me believe that I might not always give in to that? Would you help me believe that you're writing a different story, that you're growing me, that you're sanctifying me, that you're maturing me in Christ? It's Paul's prayer. He says, he prays that God would give them power through the Spirit to know Christ's love and embrace his kingship. That's his prayer for the church. That's what we need God to do. That's what the church at Ephesus needs God to do. But here's the deal. We must also put ourselves in a position to receive the work of God. Theologians have often referred to spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, prayer, Sabbath, silence and solitude, uh, scripture reading, all of that as putting yourself under the waterfall of grace. So this is the idea that God's love for you is like a waterfall. It's tangibly pouring in Christ Jesus, in the good news of the gospel for you. And what we do when we practice these spiritual practices is not that we're fixing ourselves, but we're putting ourselves under the waterfall of God's grace such that it actually changes us. So I want to give us some invitations for us to put ourselves under the waterfall of grace to create space in our lives for God to work in the gap. Three things, most of them are going to feel obvious. Number one, get with God. Get with God. If you're in the gap, you got to get with God. And I know that sounds obvious. I know it sounds like, yeah, totally. I, Tim, this is weird. Are you Jesus juking me right now? Like, you know I'm in the gap, right? You know how the gap feels. You know when you're in the gap, the last thing you want to do is read your Bible and pray. And it feels like you're kind of doing a little, ah, pray. Listen got to get with God. I know everything in your heart doesn't want to. I know that your times in the word feel dry. I know they feel empty. I know it feels like God's not speaking. You have to get with him. Here's the deal. Let me encourage you. When it feels like spiritual disciplines are helping the least, maybe when you need them the most. Let me say that again. When it feels like spiritual disciplines are helping the least, maybe when you need them the most. When spiritual practices feel like a box to be checked, check the box. It's good for you. Because here's the reality. Your feelings lie to you. They lie to you. The, the Bible says the heart is wicked and deceitful. Who can understand it? That's not what I want to follow. 
something that's wicked and deceitful. Your feelings lie to you. Let me give you a really helpful tool. Some of you guys might know this already. Some of you guys, it might be helpful. I hope it's helpful for all of us. It's called the truth train. It's kind of a version of it. So here's what we do. Our feelings lie to us, but we think feelings are reality, right? So we say, okay, my feelings are telling me God doesn't love me. My feelings are telling me God's not good. My feelings are telling me God's not there for me, that he's not going to show up, that he doesn't love me in Christ Jesus, that I'm still guilty before him, that I'm not forgiven, all of that. And so our feelings, we let dictate us, and then we let truth follow. Well, if it it feels like God's not there for me, then it must be true that God's not there for me. Well, if it feels like I'm not actually forgiven at the foot of the cross, then I must not actually be forgiven at the foot of the cross. Well, if it feels like God doesn't love me in Christ Jesus, then he must not actually love me in Christ Jesus. Well, if it feels like he's not showing up in presence and power in my life, then it must be that he's not showing up in presence and power in my life. We let feelings drive us, and yet feelings lie to us. So the invitation is to turn it around to let truth drive us, and to let our feelings catch up to the truth, right? To say, okay, I know what's true. I know that in Christ Jesus, I have the full approval and welcome and sonship in Christ. And so even though my feelings are lying to me, telling me that I am unloved and unwanted, I'm going to follow truth. Okay, I know that the truth is that Christ died for me, not because of me, but because of God's glory. And so through faith in that, I have a welcome into God's family. I'm going to tell my feelings that because my feelings are lying. Okay, I know that getting in God's word even doesn't seem like it helps right now in the moment. I know that prayer, even though it doesn't seem like it's helping, I know that that's what I need to get in the presence of God and that it's good for me, so I'm going to tell my feelings that. I was shared this uh, a few years ago. It was so helpful. Uh, another pastor told me this, so I'm going to share it with you. He said, feelings are like toddlers. What you do with toddlers is that you don't put them in the trunk of the car. That would be very bad. That's neglectful. You shouldn't do that. Feelings are valid, they're real, even if they're lies. You don't want to disregard them, you don't want to just throw them outside, but you also don't let feelings drive the car. Harper has one of those little like cars that she sits on and pushes with her feet, and it's like three seconds before she runs it into the wall. You don't put toddlers, you don't put feelings in the trunk, you don't let them drive. You put them in the back seat, strapped into a car seat where they can alert you if there's a problem, they can alert you if they're hungry, they can alert you if they need something, but they're not driving the vehicle. And some of us, we need to say, hey, feelings, you're not in charge anymore. Feelings, you're not going to get the last word anymore. Our feelings lie to us. Don't let up. Keep pressing into God. If you need help with spiritual practices, we put together a ton of resources um, on a website, rhythmsandformation.com. It has a ton of guides on how to practice Bible reading, how to practice prayer, how to practice Sabbath, silence and solitude, all these things. Don't give up. Your feelings are lying to you. Number two. Number one, get with God. Number two, get with other believers. Get with other believers. Look back at what he says in verse 18. Paul says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. We learn to grasp Christ's love in the context of Christ's people. In other words, bridging the gap is a community project. We do this together. There are going to be times where I don't believe the goodness of God, where I'm stuck in the gap, where I don't want to let the truth of who God is and how much he loves me affect my heart, and you're going to need to remind me even when I don't want to hear it. There's going to be times when you need me to remind you even when you don't want to hear it. I heard a pastor recently talk about this idea of the Christian life, like climbing a mountain in a team. So when you climb a mountain in a team, I wouldn't know, I looked it up. Uh, If you climb a mountain as a team, you don't just strap yourself to a mountain, you actually also strap yourself to each other 
So you're connected to the mountain and to the holds on the mountain by rope, but you're also connected to the other climbers by rope. And so what happens is if one of the climbers falls, they're not only secure because they're attached to the side of the mountain, but they're also secure because they're attached to one another. I love that picture for the Christian life. Y'all, the Christian life is dangerous. It's full of peril. It's full of trial. It's full of danger and temptation, and we need the gift of community. But here's the deal. Your feelings are going to lie to you in the gap, and they're going to tell you that you should isolate and separate yourself and that no one cares and that no one's going to be there for you. And your feelings lie. So I have to go back to the truth train. You have to remind yourself what is actually true. Here's the reality. Here's, here's one of the best things you can do if you're in the gap right now. Serve somebody else. And I was going to be like, what? That's weird. I need to like figure out my own walk with the Lord. I think one of the best things you can do if you're in the gap, if you're doubting the goodness of God, is to serve someone else, to take your eyes off of your own situation and actually serve them and serve the Lord through serving them. I think it's one of the best things you can do if you're in the gap. The gap is going to want to make you run from God. Don't. It's going to make you want to run from Christian community. Don't. And neither of these things are going to bridge the gap overnight. And so that leads us to number three, commit to the long game. Commit to the long game. The gap isn't solved in one community group time. It's not solved in one gathering. It's not solved in one awesome devotional time. It's a long game. Paul doesn't pray this for the Ephesians in, in chapter 3, and then suddenly they all get the love of Christ forever. We know that because of the, Rev, of the book of Revelation and how it goes at the end for them. It doesn't just snap into place. It's not just fixed. We have to learn to play the long game of sanctification, that growth in Christ is two steps forward and a step and a half back. Part of maturity is learning to recognize life is full of ups and downs, and we can't always live in the ups, but we also won't always live in the downs. You got to commit to the long game, believing Christ will redeem it, if not in the near future, eventually when he returns and makes all things new. One day it's going to be redeemed. One day the gap will not be. Get with God. We have to get with other believers. We have to commit to the long game of our growth. Let me end with some encouragement for us, and then we're going to spend some time in prayer and worship together. I remember the first time I experienced this funk uh, as a married man. So Lindsay and I got married a little less than six years ago, and we were living in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, and we had just started our first ministry jobs. We were doing college ministry at the University of Louisville, and uh, we were in seminary together, and Lindsay's ministry, just to put it frankly, was doing awesome. Uh, this is not how it was. This is how it felt at the time. It felt like she would go to a meeting over coffee with a college student, and she would come back and be like, so they accepted Christ. Like, it just felt like that was how it was. And then I would go and be like, they... They hate me. Uh, and so I just felt like things are not going well. Uh, I was disillusioned with my studies. I was unsure about what was going on. I was like, God, did you really call us to this? Like, it feels like what is happening? And just this cloud moved in. So both the circumstances were bad, and then there was just this heaviness. And I was trying to explain to my new wife what was going on in my soul. And I was like, I don't know, but nothing that you or anybody else is telling me is helping. And it just, I don't know what to do. I remember it was in that season that I got assigned to read a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read The Pilgrim's Progress before? So it was a book written in the 1600s by a guy named John Bunyan. I think it's like the sixth most popular book in history. Like it's a very well-known book. If you've never read it, you should. It's basically one big allegory for the Christian life. There's a, the main uh, character, his name is 
Christian, because it's an allegory, and he walks through this journey from his home all the way to the celestial city, which represents heaven, eternity with Jesus. And along the way, he comes across all of these perils and trials and temptations that we face in the Christian life. So he comes face to face with Mr. Legalism, who tries to tempt him with following all these rules to get God's approval. And he comes face to face with Mr. Uh, Worldly Wise Man, who tries to tempt him to think with the wisdom of the world and secular ethics, all this kind of stuff. At one point in the book, Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, this is going somewhere, it's an allegory, I promise, Uh, Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, get locked away in what's called the Doubting Castle by the Giant of Despair. Doubting Castle, Giant of Despair. I don't think there's a better allegory, a better example of what we feel in the gap than saying you're locked in Doubting Castle by the Giant of Despair. The giant of despair spends the whole weekend torturing them. He hits them with the rod of depression. He just beats them up with doubt and uncertainty and lies and all of this stuff, basically making them doubt that their life is worth anything, that God loves them, all of this stuff. And so they're trapped there in Doubting Castle. And one night, Christian turns to Hopeful and he says, we should pray. So they start praying. Start praying at midnight and around 6 a.m., Christian remembers. He says, hopeful, I can get us out of Doubting Castle. I can get us away from the giant of despair. This isn't how it's always going to be. There's another way I can get us out. And hopeful says, how? How can you get us out? He says, I just remembered that I have the key of promise. Is the key of promise is what's going to get us out of Doubting Castle and away from the giant of despair. Here's the thing you need in your gap. You need the promises of God. Promises of God that he loves you in Christ Jesus, that he is tender-hearted towards you, that he is patient with you, that he is long-suffering, that he is kind, that he is a shepherd, that he is good, that he is present. But more than anything in all of those promises, you need the ultimate promise. And Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. What do you need for your gap? You need Christ. So I'm reading this book in the middle of this funk where everything around me seems like it's cloudy and I'm disillusioned with life and I'm uncertain about everything. And if you're like me, and why I've been struggling with what I'm going to say at this end so much is because what I want to do is I want to say, hey, if you're in the gap, here's step A, step B, and step C, and it's going to fix it. That's what I want for my gap. Right? If I'm clouded, if I'm confused, if I'm disillusioned, I want somebody to come, hey, do this, read this, say this prayer, chant this three times, memorize this verse, and God's going to lead you out of the gap. Here's the good news of the gospel is that we don't need steps. We need a savior. We don't need a rescue plan. We need a redeemer. So Paul gives us, let's finish it out, 20 and 21, Ephesians 3. This is how we'll close. Some of y'all may have heard this verse before. It doesn't mean anything you think it means. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We cheapen this verse in Christian culture. It has nothing to do with Christ patting your wallet or giving you a worry-free, struggle-free, hashtag blessed life. It has nothing to do with that. The abundantly more is not you getting a bunch of material blessings. The abundantly more is you being able to understand and embrace the love of Christ for you. And that's way better news. It feels like I want the other one. It feels like I'd rather have that stuff. You don't. You want the love of Christ on the cross on your behalf. That is the better. 
And God says, I can do abundantly more than all we ask or think. Yeah, but my gap tells me it's always going to be this way. My gap tells me I'm always going to struggle with this sin, but yet God says I can do abundantly more. Yeah, but my, my gap says that Christ doesn't love me, that faith isn't enough, that I got to do some stuff, I got to go to church more, I got to earn some more approval, but God says, yes, but I can do abundantly more. My, my gap says that Christ is not good, that he's not after his glory and my good. My gap says that I'm alone and nobody cares about me and I can't understand and embrace the truth of God. And yet God says I can do immeasurably more. Meaning you can actually grasp and get the love of Christ for you. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news for our gap. Not that we have some 10-step solution. Not that we, okay, we do A, we do B, we do C, but that we have a Savior. We have Christ Jesus for our gap. It's Christ who unlocks the doubting castle. It's Christ who subdues the giant of despair. It's Christ who bridges our gap. And so the invitation for us is to get with God, to get with others, to commit to the long game, and to wait on the Lord. Let me pray to that end. Let's pray together. God, we need you. We need you. God, some of us are in the gap right now when we're frustrated and we're beat down and we're broken and we're annoyed and we're bitter and we're full of disbelief and doubt. God, we need you. And some of us, doubting castle and the giant of despair are a one-for-one with our lives right now. We feel beat up, we feel broken, we feel disillusioned with life. And we need... Jesus. We need the one who all of your promises are yes and amen. God, we need a savior. We need a redeemer. We need a rescuer. We need a king. God, I pray for those of us that are in the gap right now. Those of us who tangibly are aware of all of the ways in which we don't want to believe your goodness, all of the ways in which we don't want to believe your kindness, all the ways we don't want to believe your patience and your love and your grace for us. God, we need you to bridge the gap. God, would you help us to get with you, even though it doesn't feel worth it right now, to get with other believers, even though it feels hard to play the long game and to wait on you. Or we need you desperately. We need what only your spirit can do. God, would you help us be willing to get on our knees, figuratively and literally, before you? We need you. We need your help. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.